Welcome to the Tales from the Stalls podcast. This podcast will feature interviews with equine professionals, trainers, horse enthusiasts, and the business people who have evolved the equine industry into what it is today. We will discuss all the equine disciplines and talk about lifetime stories from the industry and what has helped people intertwine their love for horses into lifelong businesses, passion, or recreational escapes. Tales from the Stalls is about the people, the amazing horses, and even our beloved dogs who spend so much time with the horses and how they have transformed our barns, stables, and stalls into our sanctuaries and homes. This podcast is brought to you by Equine Health Solutions. EHS provides your horses with natural remedies to help your horse perform and keep an active and healthy lifestyle. Equine Health Solutions has products for your horses made from various natural botanicals, which actually help with inflammation and overall equine health. You can find these amazing products at equinehealthsolutions.com or call 1-800-HORSE-12. You can find Equine Health Solution products and Equine Hip Solution products at Teskey's at 3001 West 120 Weatherford, Texas, 817-599-3400 is their phone number, or you can go to their website at teskeys.com. If you're in Heiko, Texas, you can go to Keith Ace Hardware, 214 Walnut Street, Heiko, Texas. Phone number is 294-795-1746. If you want to check them on the internet, just check and search Keith Ace Hardware, Heiko, Texas. Please visit your local retailers and help promote the local retailers and Equine Health Solutions with their natural hemp products. This is Brian Dickerson. We're here today with Dr. Dustin Davis. Uh, Dr. Davis was introduced to me last year um, from another client of ours and renowned as far as in the deer world and artificial insemination. And we had a great conversation and developed a good uh, working friendship after that, learning how much Dr. Davis knows is absolutely insane when it comes to the uh, parasitic aspects of animals and the artificial insemination. And many times when I have a conversation with him, he just ended up taking his arm out of some type of animal during his work day. So I'll let Dr. Davis give a little bit more thorough introduction, but first I want to say thank you to Equine Health Solutions for sponsoring the show and Thank you, Dr. Davis, for being on the show and give the, the crowd a little bit of what your background is. Hey, Brian, thank you so much for having me. I, I appreciate y'all having me out here. Just uh, a little bit about myself. Born and raised in Northwest Georgia. Attended University of Georgia for uh, undergrad and for vet school. It's, it's funny, you know, I started off in college being an engineer. And just kind of, you know, being the rural aspect of the country I grew up in and was like, well, you know, I'm good at math and decided, you know, I'll just be an engineer. My dad's an engineer and, you know, I was doing good in school and I was uh, dating a young lady that uh, actually later become my wife. She was working at a dairy farm and, you know, it just, I just couldn't get enough of it. And finally I was like, you know what, we got a friend of ours that's, uh, that's a large animal vet and. You know, because I, I figured, well, being couldn't go to school to be a cowboy, and I wasn't exactly born with 3,000 acres of property in central Kansas to farm, and was, I wasn't going to be able to be born into my own farm. I was going to have to work on everybody else's. So I was like, you know, let's give this vet thing a try and rode with the large animal vet. I'll never forget it. It's a fellow by the name of Dr. Ricky Poe at East Paulding Animal Hospital, and 
off of Highway 120 back uh, back before it was the asphalt jungle down there. And that day, uh, I could take you to the ranch right now we were at. There was a, a horse in the field, had a fractured splint bone. And I'm looking around, and it's like, so how are we going to do this? And Dr. Poe's like, oh, man. He kind of took the Jerry Clower approach. We're just going to fire in there amongst them and get some relief. We laid that sunbuck down right in the middle of the field. We chiseled out that splint bone. And it was at that point in time, I knew that there was no other thing I could do on the planet that would be, you know, part doctor, part rodeo clown, part adrenaline junkie that would check all those boxes as much as doing large animal vet medicine. At that point in time, I changed my major, went to UGA, majored in animal science. I got into vet school. Graduated in 2009, took a, a position at 100% ambulatory practice in uh, South Central Virginia. Worked there for about two and a half years, as is a big thing right now. I incurred a bunch of student loans along the way, but uh, in 2011, I applied for and received something called the VMLRP. It's the Vet Medicine Loan Repayment Program. And in this program, the uh, USDA, you actually receive a grant and they'll pay off uh, your student loans if you service an underserved area. So I was blessed enough to receive that if I moved to an underserved area. So we bought a practice. It was a one and a half vet practice in uh, southwestern Pennsylvania, about one county over from where my wife's family is from. And yeah, as the saying goes, love makes you do stupid things. I did, they measure snow in feet, not inches. So I bought a practice, grew it, grew it, started actually when I brought, came to the practice, it was a mixed animal practice. So we had, you know, we did some small animal stuff, a typical country practice. Uh, we also serviced about, uh, we, we serviced about five or 600 head of horses. You know, we did dairy cattle, we did beef and, and over time, uh, the practice grew and grew and grew also coming into the area, uh, I, I always had a passion about doing repro work. Uh, my wife and I, even whenever she was in, whenever we got married, she was working in the Therio uh, department there in the University of Georgia at the vet school. And we would embryo flush mares, AI mares. I learned how to scan. I mean, I, I worked with some great, great instructors there. Dr. Bear Hoskins, good old Dr. Scherzer, and... I mean, it was, it was awesome. And I think the good Lord has a sense of humor. You don't know what you're preparing for on your next step while you're in the middle of it. So, but, you know, getting involved in repro there, it just really sparked a passion where I was at in Virginia. Uh, I brought embryo transfer to the practice there for cattle, brought it whenever, you know, brought that same skill set with me whenever I bought the practice in Pennsylvania in 2011. Well, little did I know whenever I moved to Pennsylvania, but Pennsylvania is actually has a lot of captive white-tailed deer, captive cervids. It's second in the country only to Texas in the number of deer farms that they have. So we got involved in in working with these guys, and I was like, huh? Yeah, I spent the first half of my life trying to figure out how to kill these jokers, and here I am in the second half trying to figure out how to keep them alive and perpetuate them. It was, it, it was one of those times that, you know, people were calling, hey, doc, can you come out and look at this? And, you know, you go out and you'd see these huge monster bucks. And, you know, there's that 16-year-old kid on the inside that's losing his junk. But you're just, you, you've got to be, 
you've got to be the the professional well oh yes that's uh that's a nice deer when on the inside you're i mean you're you're probably crazy that was a lot a lot of the same skill set that we use to work on deer it translates over to sheep and goats as well in 2012 i traveled down to australia because nobody in the states would train me on how to do laparoscopic artificial insemination on these guys so 2012 went down there worked with dr david osborne now all of this while we're running a vet clinic as well and it's growing uh it was at that point in time we were at three vets i bought it was one and a half vets and moved up to three vets and from 2011 until july of 22 uh, we went from one and a half vets to running five vets and having, uh, and then in the also AI and a couple thousand head of whitetails along with several thousand head of sheep and goats. Also doing in vitro fertilization in cattle and embryo flushing them and AI and, AI and horses as well. I was riding two horses with one bat and not doing a great job of it. And thankfully, uh, I mean, I had an associate, Dr. Stacy Lyle. She's, she's great. I trained her myself, so if she does it wrong, it ain't because she, <laughs> she wasn't trained any better. So I tell people, but, uh, she's, she's awesome. She, we, uh, we decided that, you know, with the repro side growing and the general practice side growing, uh, that we would split and she's now, she now owns and runs a general practice side. And, uh, we started our, our own, we just split off and started our own all repro aspect of uh of vet practice now i still do i still do a lot of consulting you'll go and help my buddies out like uh, earlier this summer i was out in west texas uh helping train some people out there in general practice you know it's it's fun it it, it definitely is a blast Brian was saying as as you were saying a little while ago uh in the in the process of doing some of this the repro work and uh I actually met met you. What was it? It was uh, what February of last? No, no, it was what fall or winter of last year. January, yeah, January, January. Yeah, I know it, it was cold everywhere about Florida, so I knew it had to be some sort of winter. You know, one of the ranches we work with down in South Florida, he uh, he told me he said, "Doc, you got to come meet this guy. You got to come meet this guy." And I, I didn't know what I was in for, but went out for that to the facility really literally sparked i mean it got my wheels turning and and looking at you know some of the options and some of the some of the the common problems that i encounter whether it's private practice uh, general practice or it's specialty practice you know uh where you know these uh these flavonoid products come in and actually excel and i'm asking myself well why didn't i hear very much about this while i was in school and you know digging deeper and you know i i fell down uh, i I'm pretty sure I texted you or called you a couple of days after touring the facility. He says, like, man, I fed down the, I fed down the flavonoid hole pretty hard last night, reading and, and catching up on everything from flavonoid usage and as an anti-inflammatory or, you know, hemp extract as anxiolytic. And, you know, one of the things that we actually worked together this year on was its, its usage as uh, anti-parasitic. And it's funny, uh, we, we did that study there on whitetail deer in January and somebody else actually published something in February that we didn't even know was, was about. And it, they found they had a lot of the same type of results that we did on, you know, being able to use a novel acting dewormer as anybody with goat, sheep or deer or cattle or any sort of livestock for that matter. No, parasites are, are a bugger and parasite resistance is, is pretty well everywhere. 
And if we can bring something to the party that these guys that's effective and these guys haven't seen before, I'm not going to use the word magic bullet, but it definitely gives us another gun we can use in our arsenal. That's for sure. So we, we got involved in some of that. Yeah, I think what we need to go into, uh, Dr. Davis, is, I mean, similar to when someone hears a service farm or deer farm, and when you say Texas is number one and Pennsylvania is number two, I don't think, unless you actually do the research and see what it does, the gravity and how much of an industry the deer market is, and when you then parlay that over to the cattle market, I mean, you're looking at huge markets here that are all affected by parasites. So if you could tell tell them how large the deer world is and then how the parasites are infecting the deer, the cattle, and like you said, sheep and goats, which in part of the country is really huge as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some people don't realize how the size, the market, and I'll be honest with you, you know, I grew up deer hunting and I, I didn't know how large this deer market was either. Uh, just take Chris's. I'd said that Texas was number one in the country and farmed white-tailed deer. In Texas alone, it's over a $2 billion, with a B, billion-dollar industry. And we're not talking about wild deer hunting. We're not talking about, we're, we're talking about, you know, deer farms. And people say, well, Doc, why, why aren't there other people farming deer? And it does carry a little bit of negative connotations to some people. Well, right now, the big thing that's going on in deer farming is, you know, some people do raise, you know, some bucks to go hunt at these larger preserves. And I say, they're like, well, I'm not going to hunt a high fence buck. Well, I tell you what, you come and I'll, let's go out on 8,000 acres and I'll go hide for two days. And if you can hit me with a paintball in two days, then then you're a heck of a lot better hunter than most of the people I know. This isn't, you know, leading deer out on a on a leash and putting a collar. This is it, it's it's very uh very challenging. It's the people who do it right, it's very much a uh uh an experience. And you're talking and I'm not just talking about like a regular experience. Talk about, you know, like if I'm taking my kids, I've taken my kids hunting in some of these places. It's very much a, a father son bonding. Unfortunately, we live in a world where everyone is suffering from time poverty. And whenever you can disengage, and it's not me I worry about oftentimes in the woods with a gun. It's everybody else that's out there with a gun. Oh, I don't know what their practices are. So that's one aspect. But right now, uh, one of the things that's hitting deer farmers is CWD uh, genetics. So there's we've identified genetics that are resistant to CWD. And you say, well, what's CWD? It's kind of like mad cow disease for, for whitetails there's there's really no vaccine against it it's a prion that you can you can google search cwd and deer and get some get a lot of information about it but we've identified these genetic that we can perpetuate and multiply so for the within the next five to ten years we're going to have captive deer who are resistant to cwd and then we're going to try to perpetuate those genetics in the wild so between those two aspects solving a a public health issue, uh, also along with the game side of, of deer hunting. Those are two big areas that deer hunting takes, that the deer farming feeds into. And like what I said, this is billions of dollars. In Texas alone, like what I said, it's over $2 billion. And then farming, as with anything, one of the major, major players is, is parasite control. You know, I heard a nutritionist say, I don't mind... I don't mind livestock going outside. I just wish they wouldn't eat when they go out there. 
because uh, the problem is, is especially anything that's grazing, they're eating for something else poop. And it's, it's kind of gross to say that out loud and words you can't say at elementary school, but and that's where parasites come from. And, you know, it, and there are other factors such as, you know, length of the grass and, you know, stocking density and, and things we can get into. But if you leave animals that eat off the ground outside long enough, it doesn't matter whether it's a ruminant or a horse or whatever, they are going to acquire parasites. And the load on the parasite, the parasite load on, on livestock is can be substantial. I mean, there's there's projections, you know, losses uh, in worldwide of over $9 billion just from parasites alone around the world and and just from losses in production not just loss of life but it's the subclinical losses that we worry about you know it's that cap instead of him gaining 3.5 pounds per per day he's only gaining you know 2.2 or 1.8 and it's also the same thing with these horses if that horse is running the 17 second ba- barrel pattern as opposed to a 15 second barrel clover leaf you're one of those times will get you a trailer and another one will get you early exit to the house so these guys are inhibitors of performance, regardless of what your measuring parameters are. And, and it's because every time that that animal eats, it's feeding the parasite. So not just that it's a widespread problem, but the big one of the biggest issues right now is because people are like, oh, well, doc, they got worms, but I'm deworming them. I'm deworming them. Well, University of Georgia just released a study this past year talking about over 90% of farms have evidence of parasite resistance. So parasite resistance is whenever these parasites are no longer susceptible to the ivermectin and stidectin and ducts and things like that. So that's why the targeted deworming is so important with these guys. Instead of just stepping in and giving everybody a dewormer with these ones, they're so ineffective that we're having to use extra label super high doses just on the ones that are affected. And that's actually one of the things that interested me with the flavonoid usage was, you know, this is a big problem, as I'd previously said, but with this novel acting, the, you know, this uh, new mechan- mechanism of action, where basically it just goes in and it paralyzes these worms and then the, the animal expels them. I mean, if we can bring that, like what I said, if we don't have any evidence yet of resistance to these, I, I think that's a huge tool that we can bring to the party so i guess if you can from and you're very good at doing this dr davis dumbing down the science of the flavonoids and how the flavonoids from the plants actually and have historically naturally helped the animals fight off parasites but when this mixture is put together how is the how are the flavonoids how is a plant extract actually helping an animal kill, uh, like you just said, excrete the actual parasites after they are encountering the product. How does that happen? So that right there's a lot of reading I had to do on my own. You remember me talking about falling down the flavonoid hole. And whenever whenever I, I started looking at some of these flavonoids, I mean, good grief. These, this is a, a broad group naturally occurring things that the the naturally occurring compounds that are in plants as it is now some plants carry a higher concentration than others and that was you know the the first there's there's basically 
two main areas that you'll find wherever you go researching how these flavonoids work. Uh, the one I touched on a little bit, you know, we we talk about uh, we talked about the deworming capability. So what happens is the animal consumes these these plants, and in nature, you know, it talks about uh, uh, we talk about Serratia lespidiza. For them boys down south, they a lot of people look at it like a weed, but it's actually also it's it's a plant that's got a natural dewormer in it. It's uh it's a tannin. And I remember the old timers back where I was a kid. Oh, doc, just give them some, give them some, a big old pouch of some Levi Garrett or some Red Man. And I just think that some folks would just use that just to go out and get the get mama's credit card and just buy <laughs> okay. That, you know, what they were doing is they were that, that Red Man and, and that chewing tobacco in certain concentrations. I'm not, I'm not vouching for it. I'm just saying that it would stimulate nicotinic receptors inside of these inside of these parasites and then they would kind of have like a little parasite seizure and they would pass them well with flavonoids what we found is these worms will consume this because they're eating everything that the host is eating they're you know they're a parasite they'll they'll consume these and the flavonoid gets into the cns of the central nervous system so the brain and the spinal cord of that that worm and it paralyzes it and keeps it most of these worms are attached to the wall that lining inside of inside of the host and wherever it paralyzes it it allows it you know through regular movement to expel the the worm out of the host thereby no longer having to feed it so what you what we saw was you know from feeding that at certain concentration we were able to clean these guys up just like on a regular dewormer and the the paralysis or you know like we talked about with a, you know a little worm seizure those are common actions that a lot of our dewormers will use in order to to get rid of worms in the host it doesn't matter whether it's a horse or a cow or a dog or, or whatever but so that's the deworming aspect of flavonoids that i've i've and then the other aspect that I think is extremely intriguing as well is the anti-inflammatory component of it. I mean, it was one of those things that the potency of the anti-inflammatory component is, it, it was substantial. It, it kind of rocked me a little bit. And, and this is, you know, looking back, these are things that happen in nature all the time at different concentrations. It's just getting those extracted out and putting them, you know, kind of all, populated together it's like making an all-star team from plant derivatives so what this anti-inflammatory is i mean in the human side they've even there's published data out there about it being 40 times more potent than taking aspirin and whenever we look at anti-inflammatories they kind of carry some side effects on on general and when we say anti-inflammatories we think about banamine we think about advil you know we think about some of these and you know, these things carry, everybody who's got a horse understands, well, if we got to leave this sucker on Banamine at a high dose for a little while, twice a day, you know, we're going to be dealing with some ulcers. We may be getting into some kidney issues. You know, they, they carry their own luggage from that standpoint, these NSAIDs, these non-steroidal anti-inflammatories. And one of the things that we found on the, the plant derivatives is if we can get anti-inflammatory capabilities without some of the baggage, you know, it's kind of like, I tell people, well, it's kind of like going over and seeing your girlfriend. You'd be like, well, 
want to go over to my girlfriend's house and see her, but her mama's crazy. So if you could go see your girlfriend without getting a crazy mama, then you're golden. So in looking at it, and and I was very skeptical. I'll be honest. Hold on, Davis. Hold on. Dr. Davis, are you saying that is our medical theory right there? That we're going to be able to go over and see our girlfriend without seeing the mama? That is the best analogy for the the way the flavonoids work? <laughs> I mean, I said her crazy mama, not just her mama, her crazy <laughs> Okay. So where Kathy Davis is getting an eye roll and she don't know why. And one of the things, and I'll be honest with you, Brian, I was skeptical. I was very skeptical of some of this because, you know, you know, my... My daddy's a Southern Baptist preacher, and you know we're talking about hip, and I go thinking about the stuff at the at the checkout line at the Seven Eleven or at the Wawa or something, and you're like, man, I don't know about this. But then you go reading, and these peer reviewed public published articles, and you know go finding out Johns Hopkins right now is using a flavonoid as a base treatment for squamous cell carcinoma or skin cancer. Johns Hopkins University. Uh, it's Ludy Allen. I mean, they, they are, it is implemented and u- utilized in every time that they go treating skin cancer. Uh, also the anti-inflammatory capabilities of flavonoids being utilized in on the human aspect for something is, is common as male impotency as they get older, extending, you know, from a, a livestock standpoint, I don't know if I can say this on the air, but extending the breeding life of those older people. Or in, you know, in cases where, you know, impotency is a struggle for some couples. But utilization of that due to the anti-inflammatory capability to be able to calm some of this basal inflammation down in, in these situations. Also, as a uh, uh, as a, a cofactor, and one of the things I saw in, on, from my line of work as well is utilization of quercetin and using it as a, uh, to help semen whenever you go to freeze it you know the freezing process is really really hard you can imagine any sort of tissue that you got to dunk down in liquid nitrogen it's going to cause some inflammation if you don't believe me you know go dip your finger in some liquid nitrogen tell me how it feels and you know utilization of these pathways these compounds for anti-inflammatory pathways is it's being used it's being used and it's effective uh I, i think that's really huge and i think that you know, from we go back to performance. We talked about horses and dewormers and, and cattle and dewormers. And yeah, I, I believe that, you know, from on the repro side of things, yeah, it extremely intrigues me. You know, you go talking about these guys, it's not uncommon. You know, at least five tail bucks to be for fifty or sixty thousand dollars. But if he's not if he's unable to cover those due to you know old age or arthritis i mean these guys still get it or in cases that we're dealing with right now uh there's a virus that is very common it's it goes around every year it's called ehd episodic hemorrhagic disease it stirred up it spread via biting midges uh, it's a virus they get into the deer population and boy is it rough but it causes a lot of inflammation with these guys. And whether it's on the, on the males, it, it will cook a set of testicles and it'll cook a set of ovaries as well. I've taken pictures laparoscopically inside of these guys. And it's like, good grief. It just damages rapidly replicating tissue. And, you know, if you've got a $60,000 buck out there that, you know, he's dealing with inflammation and that's why he's not able to breed those. That's an expensive lawnmower, man. 
But if, you know, utilization or putting them on an anti-inflammatory and anybody who thinks they can just go out and just <laughs> treat a buck every day with a dart or a syringe or, you know, squirting something in his mouth, that uh, that's a whole other challenge in delivery of medications altogether. But, yeah, I really see the anti-inflammatory. Go ahead, Dr. Davis. Go ahead. Oh, I think, I just think there's a really large ceiling uh, for these compounds, you know, and, and it's something I had to learn myself. It, it, had I not met you, I don't even know if I would have listened to anybody. I had to learn it with my own eyes and go through it myself and, and wrestle it to the ground myself and be like, wow, this is, this isn't, this isn't the, the little, the things at the gas station checkout line. This is real big science, you know, to use high fancy Georgia $50 words there. It's big science, man. And I think when we had that conversation, we talked about different studies. You and I went back to that. There's that 2008 study and it's published on NIH website. And the basis of the common dietary flavonoids inhibiting the growth malaria parasite. And that was, I think, when we talked about it showing, when you're talking about the quercetin, that People have to understand the flavonoids are in the majority of good, healthy plants. And when you see this breakdown, camperfloral and quercetin are in onions, kale, broccoli, apples, cherries, fennel, sorrel, berries, tea, and then parsley, thyme, celery, that the thing is we just don't consume that anymore. And unfortunately for our livestock, they're not consuming their natural green habitat anymore. Or like you said, it could have too many cattle in an area or too many deer that it's congested, but it's it's the basic, the greds and the greens of the plants that our forefathers ate and consumed that we no longer do, and we're missing from our diet, and the animals are missing from their diet that have these natural flavonoids, these natural anti-inflammatory, antimicrobial bacterial carousel that, like you said, work together, and it's finding these plants that have these old heirloom genetics that have not been modified that can really bolster and help, like you said, the animals and the humans. You know, it's a good point because, I mean, you know, you you go looking at it and you're right. A lot of the things you just listed, <laughs> my two kids don't like eating about anything that was on that list. And it's uh, unfortunately, but it is essential. I mean, you know, you go, uh, oftentimes a lot of these plants, they do carry a different flavor to them. And it's not due to the flavonoid. It's just, you know, natural, <laughs> it's just natural preference. And, you know, kale and onions and, and these other things. I know that everything does taste better with, with cheese and chili on it. Don't get me wrong. Or some hot sauce. But I, I swim that too many people at the, at the restaurant down the road that are at, ordered extra kale chips for their cheese dip. I mean, that's just how it goes. If left to our own, left our own devices, we're probably going to avoid those foods. And, you know, and, it, and if and we're seeing evidence of that, like what you said, well, I, I guess that just, it, it so just you, really just floored me that the, the common nature of some of these flavonoids that are being utilized in higher scientific levels, like what I said, you know, as a baseline of cancer treatment, like you, you look it up, you can find it on john topkins website it's it was it just floored me that it was this common and it's not being covered it's interesting it is a shame it's not being covered i mean it's beneficial but why don't you tell a little bit about your study that you did with the deer and using the flavonoids 
and the flavonoid mixture that was sprayed on the uh, alfalfa pellets to help control the parasites of that deer population. As you just said there, um, you know, and as we'd previously discussed, you know, I mean, paras- parasites are horrible, 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 uh, naughty. I mean, they are a, a, a negative whenever it comes to production, regardless of what the end goal is. And they're common, you know, the horses deal with parasites, the deer deal with parasites, anything eats out of the ground deals with them. Brian and I were talking and he was like, hey, you know, we looked at some of this on, you know, we, we read about this. This is what the peer review data is saying. And do you think that there's a place for it? And I was like, absolutely. So we, uh, we identified, uh, went to a couple of deer ranches, took some, uh, took some, some fecal samples because that's how you look for parasites. And in basically any species is you you look through the poop and you do what's called a mcmaster's float so a mcmaster's float just basically means hey i need to know not just not just do i have the presence of eggs but i need just a quantitative tell me how many eggs i got in here how much eggs do i have per gram and so we did that we found uh we set up at one ranch it was 82 head they had now, average of 1,800 to 1,500 eggs per gram. Uh, anytime we get over 1,000, I'm talking to people about, all right, let's 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 really get a handle on this. Let's start treating. So that's 1,800 to 1,500 eggs per gram of feces. And you go looking and, you know, this doe's putting out tens of thousands eggs every time that she poops and something else is coming up and, and eating in that area in a couple of days. And and it was during the dry season down in Florida. So our grasses were shorter. So I wanted to know, and there was a reason we chose during that time, because I want to know, hey, if this is going to work, don't tell me it works during the, the easy time of year. I want to know if what, what is it going to do whenever it, parasites are the biggest, meanest, baddest suckers around. So we did that. We, we took the flavonoid extract. We treated some alfalfa pellets with it. At a specific rate, we even tested out alfalfa pellets to make sure that it was consistent throughout the batch, that our flavonoids were consistent on the first scoop as it was on the last scoop. Two sets of deer and had a control group on the same farm. So we, we've got this range of 1,500 to 1,800 eggs per gram going on in all three sets of these deer that we've identified. And I was like, well, this is kind of walking on the moon new edge kind of stuff we don't really know what our dose is going to be so heck let's go with a let's go with a high dose and let's feed it for about 30 days and we did a a certain dose on group one and a twice of that certain dose on group two and then on group three we had as our control that weren't supposed to get any the flavonoids well at the end of the study I, yeah, at the end of 30 days, I do my McMaster's again. I look at group one, boom, they're in a parasite egg within a hundred miles. Rock on. Go to group two, boom, same thing. And group two was on twice the concentration that group one was on. And I was like, this is gravy. Well, I go to group three and I check them and group three is, they, they had, they, they didn't have any parasite eggs either. Well, one of the problems that I've found in doing real-world research is if something works and people see that something works, it's hard to keep them from utilizing it on the test group, on the control group, on the ones that need it but don't 
So I talked to the I talked to the owner and was like, "Hey, this is what we found." So we went through and we redid every single one of those McMasters. I found the same thing. There wasn't a parasite egg within a hundred miles of all three of those pens. So I talked to the owner of the ranch and he was like, "Well, I was like, did you did you specifically feed?" Well, I did, except for this one week. I was out of town for this one week, and I was like, "Well, I can understand." There was quite a bit of a language barrier on the farm between the people doing the work and the, the individual who was telling the people to do the work. So that was one of those. I was frustrated with the results in some aspects, but then in the other aspects, I was extremely encouraged because I was like, ah, you know, if, if this guy knows that it, he sees the difference in the deer that it's working in, it's going to be hard because he's, he's the producer. He's wanting that increase in production out of his test group, out of his control group anyway. We, we hypothesized that likely whenever he was gone, due to the breakdown in communication between the, the boss and the people executing the work, that that our control group obviously got fed the parasite. The, the fecals tell us they were fed the, the hemp flavin. Now, for how long, I can't testify that, but it's just what we hypothesized was happening. We know it worked in our, in our test groups, and I know for a fact there was no other commercial dewormers within a hundred miles of that farm. It was both encouraging and a little bit disappointing, but I, th I thought it was so funny, as I said at the beginning of the, you know, my talk here, there was actually a study done. They used goats and they actually developed the mechanism of action. They reiterated the mechanism of action of flavonoids as an anti-parasitic in goats. And they published that one in February of this year. It's like, doggone it. Yeah, where we started, they hadn't published, and then when by the time that we get all of our data in, they had released that. But it was, uh, it was, it was the product, like what I said, both enlightening and a little bit frustrating to encounter that. But I mean, it worked. It definitely, it definitely worked. And the the, the article you're talking about that came out in uh, February 2023 talks about the billions of U.S. dollars a year lost from parasitic infections to animals and humans. And 24% of the world's human population are impacted by parasitic infections. So 3.5 billion. And I don't know if you've ever seen it, Dr. Davis. We haven't talked about this. Have you ever seen the, it's, it's viral, it's on YouTube and social media, uh, pouring Coca-Cola over a piece of pork? Oh, yeah. And all the parasites and all the worms that come flustering out of the pork. The raw pork by just pouring Coca-Cola over it. Yeah, why not? It'll definitely make you want to make sure that the meat you have does not have any parasites in it. I'll tell you that. I don't know, but I still love me a bacon, egg, and cheese. I'm sorry. I love me some bacon. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I would like for if you could, Dr. Davis, wrap it up and just give the audience what you're seeing as far as do you see veterinary medicine going more over to natural products or is it just still going to always be as, as we see all the time, it's got to be a pharmaceutical product and, and it seems like so many vets are just, the modern vet in my opinion is just trained to use medicine, pharmaceutical medicine, where when I've had my older vets and I'll give a shout out to Dr. Uh, Dennis Van Rocco. He was always willing to try natural products because he, his father and grandfather, he always saw them using the natural products and how well they work on the animals versus having to drug them up. 
that you 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 said a magic word there. You you said a magic phrase. You said drugging them up, and 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 I'll be honest with you, it's it's a little bit of it's it's a wild west out there right now, and and it's there's a lot of factors that go into developing your medicine that that you practice. Um, some of it is. You know, you're, you you can only utilize the information that you know. Like myself, I had to dig deeper. My previous uh, exposure to hemp products was uh, oftentimes sitting in line at the, the gas station. And you're like, this isn't, this isn't exactly, <laughs> this is not hemp. This is not, you know, real, real medicine. You know, with, with all of that taken into account, you know, developing how you practice medicine and you're exactly right. Some of them have sold their soul to big pharma and it's one of those things that, and unfortunately, you know, some people just crawl in bed with them and, and that's what they want to do. Um, but personally, I think that generally over the whole population of veterinarians, we're all type A. And we're all trying, my father-in-law says, listen, if you're not on the cutting edge, you're taking up too much room. And we're, we're all trying to, to push and try to get a little further and try to, try to develop that. I, I think that, you know, a lot of what you're talking about, utilization of all of these natural products uh, in a day and age where unfortunately, you know, opioid epidemic or everybody, there's a, there's a pill for every ill. I mean, there's, there's two dozen you know exposes whether it's netflix or amazon that are out right now talking about pill mills and pill problems and you know oxycontin and getting addiction and and that's something that i I think that the best medicine gets away from just reaching for a pill for something like that the best medicine says you know what let's 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 see if we can get the same thing achieved or maybe something better achieved without having to go to that because unfortunately you know i mean the most common medications prescribed right now in america are hope their cholesterol medication well our sex hormones are derivatives of cholesterol so you know the first the first one is statin that's that's a cholesterol medication you know what the second most common medication is prescribed for in america erectile dysfunction syndrome medication and that's due to we're basically tying up our cholesterol so one pill may solve one problem but then it ends up causing another and wherever we look at it from the thirty thousand foot view and instead of falling down this this pill mill way if we can go and say hey you know what you know if we can try to avoid going into that and say you know what? Well, we can manage this better, and this one medication is not going to. It's not going to be a gateway to nine other medications. This this is going to be. We're going to solve the problem. You know, it's an anti-inflammatory that doesn't have the. It's hey, like what I said before. It, it's without having the crazy mother-in-law. We don't want the baggage. What we want is the the efficacy of the product. So. In looking at it, I, one of the areas I see that's huge right now, e- even in, in vet medicine, is anxiolytic. And, you know, whenever we, we look at it, if we can, I mean, because dogs and cats and fear-free and dog aggression and gracious, 90% of the dogs out there and 100% of the cats hate coming to the vet because every time they walk in the door, they're either getting a shot in the butt or a finger up their butt for expressing anal glands. And I can imagine I'd have some aversion to go into the doctor too. And, you know, the big thing that these guys are doing 
is is you know these dogs will develop anxiety when it comes to going to the vet and well unfortunately the one of the most common things that's being used right now is medication but unfortunately this medication in some instances there have been pub there are instances of human abuse of this medication so instead of giving it to their dog they're taking the medication themselves and if we can avoid even going down to that if we can say hey you know what we can get that we can make this a better experience for this dog without drugging them without them coming in slobbering and falling over themselves or having to carry them from the truck to the exam room. If we can get that done without any of that, if we can get him in, he's wagging his tail, he gets his shot and goes back home and goes to chasing kids. Why not? Like, is that not the best medicine? You know, that term best medicine gets thrown around a bunch. If we can achieve that with, with the least amount of side effects, isn't that the purpose of best medicine? And when you're talking about that, you're talking about like the, the canine hemp solutions and the products they have that help the dog relax and chill and the calming shoes. And that's one of the major benefits people use it for is taking their dogs to the vet. But uh, hopefully, I think with what happened during COVID, we've seen a lot more people going to natural and questioning what they're putting in their body. And hopefully they'll continue to do that for their animals as well. Dr. Davis, I appreciate your time. Um, it's been great hearing your input, your your historical aspect of going over to training to Australia. You're, you're always one of the people that when we're talking, you're always trying to learn more, which I think that's what we need in the veterinary medicine world. If anybody wants the studies that Dr. Davis has performed, the written uh, reports, uh, please email me at bdickerson at equinehealthsolutions.com and I can forward those to you. You can find Dr. Davis on YouTube. He's got a couple good YouTube videos on there from during the COVID lockdown period, talking about how uh, the world was changing in the agricultural and the veterinary medicine. And Doc, any other thing you'd like to say to the audience before we turn off for the day? I appreciate you guys having me. Thanks for having me, Brian. I, I'm sorry if I rambled on too much. I got the I got the. <laughs> The gist of gab. So my wife said I got the chrome off the bumper, but that's all right. <laughs> that is all right, Doc. You know, that that's what we were expecting. That's what we were wanting when you we invite you on the show because we know you you've got great insight and you'll tell it how it is. Well, I appreciate that. All right, thank you everyone for listening to our show, The Tales from the Stalls, and uh, look forward to our upcoming shows. And we'll continue to be posting them on Spotify and other podcast networks. Thank you very much.